Welcome to Modern Prophets, where we chronicle the riveting stories and hard-won wisdom of individuals with addiction who have found recovery. So, yeah, alcohol to me was like the perfect alternate reality. I was still, I could still manage it, but not be present at all and still be able to look like I can, I'm living this thing. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Ryan Keneally. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying or finding value in these episodes, please be sure to leave a review, follow so you don't miss an episode, and share the podcast with others. My guest today is Sarah, a creative genius who pursues artwork in all forms, including comedy, acting, modeling, painting, podcasting, and writing. Sarah has appeared on MTV's Punked and Mad TV. She hosts the Not Cool podcast, performs stand-up regularly at the world-famous Comedy Store in West Hollywood, has opened for Margaret Cho and the Kims of Comedy with Bobby Lee, and continues to perform all over Los Angeles and the country. Sarah grew up creating and performing to uplift others, but also as a means of escaping an unbearable and chaotic internal and external reality. Sarah got sober in her early 20s, nine months after moving to Los Angeles. And during those first nine months in LA, she hit multiple rock bottom moments. She was living out of her car, got a DUI, could count her ribs, lost everyone, and got sober when she was out of all options. Sarah walks us through the aches of early sobriety perspective shift, tools to manage fear, self-sabotage, and the inherent difficulties of human life, as well as how she continues to stay driven and motivated, personally, professionally, and soberly. I have tremendous admiration for Sarah, and frankly for anyone who courageously puts a piece of themselves out there with their art, who can stand alone on stage and make complete strangers laugh. It's a unique skill set I will never possess. Outside of her many accomplishments and the advocacy work she's done to humanize and amplify the voices of people who are not being heard, Sarah approaches life with a beautiful, contagious curiosity and open mind. What if, instead of seeking oblivion by escaping from the world, we take a page from Sarah and turn toward it? What if instead of leaving the world behind, we immerse ourselves in it? Folks, meet Sarah. Under the and bus. you're like, details. Details, details. The big I, picture type of person. <laughs> I'm like, it's a webby. I did know where I went anyway. I do know where I went. <laughs> May 26th. <laughs> She's so rude. I know. I know a lot of things. I'm very smart. <laughs> okay. Sarah, I just, I want to thank you, and I mean truly thank you, for being here, for your courage and willingness to talk about some intimate vulnerable moments in your life uh because you know let me just say by virtue of preparing for this conversation i feel like i really got to know sarah the creative badass the accomplished artist comedian actress podcast host even sarah in the relational sense an amazing wife daughter friend and while all of those things are super important 
aspects of your life. None of them define you. But all that to say, like, I listen to your podcast. I know that you hold your personal life very close to your heart. And so naturally, I can't imagine that this would be an easy or comfortable conversation to have with a close friend, let alone someone you've just met. So thank you for being here for for showing up. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> that was a really great intro. Thank you for saying all those really kind things. That means a lot. It really does. I'm usually not on the other end, especially with a very heartfelt person. <laughs> I'm usually doing comedians <laughs> podcasts and it's like, here's Sarah. I'm like, okay, cool. So thank you. That's very sweet. And I, I no, I'm very happy to be here and I love sharing as many intimate details as I don't have anything to hide anymore. I think that's kind of the thing of, you know, living a pretty transparent life because I feel like if it can be beneficial and useful to somebody then great like you know Hell there's yeah. nothing I've heard darker stories than mine you know so it's just I'm, I'm thank you for the opportunity to be here it's very sweet thank you yeah so to, to start with something a bit easy you know you grew up in Louisville Kentucky mm-hmm. what was that what was that like oh boy oh boy you said it right too you said Louisville <laughs> what was it like it, it actually you know it was it was it was great I think you know it was a pretty as you only know the world you know right you only know like my family was it was insane and pretty dysfunctional and off the charts and you know um not normal but but I we were always I have two other brothers older brothers we were always taken care of our our needs as far as our basic needs were always met we were put in good schools. We were put in great sport. In, in, in Kentucky and most of the Southeast Midwest, sports are everything. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I love. I love about where I'm from. And I love that people are usually very loyal to where they're from. Even LA people are very like loyal to their birth city, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's like, you know, really concentrated, um, really good stuff. Like, yeah, horses, basketball and um whiskey did you (laughs) and cigarettes yeah (laughs) those are our crops so when did when did that come into your life the whiskey and the the alcohol um you know from the get-go my dad is an alcoholic he's a sober alcoholic he's been sober for i want to say it's 32 years now But alcohol was always around me. I come from a big Irish Catholic family. And, you know, my dad had, they have, he has six brothers and one sister. So that's a huge family. Yeah, big family. And they all drink and they're all loud. And it's whoever is the loudest is the one that's being heard, you know. And so there was always a lot of fighting. There was fist fighting. There was, I mean, it was insane. And then I had my mom's side who was completely opposite, very um, introverted, quiet, and they would share like a box of wine amongst the whole family for the entire day and night, like every holiday. I'm like, what in the fuck is happening? You know, and my grandpa had two refrigerators on my on my dad's side, like full of just for beer. So, you know, alcohol was always around me and I, I, you know, I saw how my dad lived and he was very charismatic and the life of the party and seemed to have a good time and so I you know I always kind of 
he was my hero. He was like the main man. And I was like, I want to be like that guy because he gets away with murder. Like he gets to have all the fun and he gets away with it. And on top of that, people fucking love this guy. Like, and then if you look at my mom, she's not an alcoholic opposite. You know, she's totally controlled and she'll have a, a glass of wine and she's like, Ooh, <laughs> won't even finish it. it. You know? <laughs> I need water. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, and I had two older brothers and, you know, my oldest, my middle brother, Terry, you know, taught me to drink. He was a partier and it's just, it was just very integrated into my life. It, it wasn't, it was as simple as it was just part of your growing up. Mm-hmm. So before I dig into that a bit deeper and, and ask you when they start to ramp up and cause problems, what led you to pursue a career in comedy? Because you found comedy before that became an issue for you, right? Yeah, I did. I actually, you know, I remember the first time I made someone laugh. It was in grade school. Her name was Carmen Woodson. Love you, Carmen. And I remember, you know, we were making um, book covers. We were had to do stories. And one of, it had to do with paper and glue, okay? And so her cover had a big bubble in it. And she was so destroyed by this she was crying and it didn't look perfect and wasn't flat like everybody else's and I went over to her because I saw she was really upset and I didn't I never liked anybody to be upset I need everybody to feel good (laughs) so I went over and I made her cover like a game I was like Carmen you're the only person that has like a fun ass cover like you can play with this motherfucker you know what I mean and she just started laughing out of her crying and I was immediately I was like that's it like that feels so good to help to to be on the other side of making someone feel better as opposed to making them feel bad so I was like I want to make people feel better mm-hmm. that felt great mm-hmm. and so I just you know I continued that all into high school and did you know I was always like the class turkey and we have we would have like <laughs> talent shows and they would be like hey Highland will you you know host this talent show and play this character and so yeah I mean that was always a part of my Comedy was always a huge part of me relieving that tension. Even in my home, um, I would, you know, that's how I came up with characters. I would go in my mom and dad's closet and dress up as somebody else. So when they got home, instead of them getting mad or in a fight, I'd be like, yo, (laughs) look at my character, you know, and I'd just do something stupid to make my mom laugh, you know. Yeah. So it sounds like in addition to your desire to make people feel better, to uplift those around you, The character-driven comedy was also a fairly sophisticated form of defense, a protective mechanism that helped you put distance between yourself and this chaotic home environment. And, you know, they say necessity is the mother of creation. So did you ever see comedy or art in general in that internally therapeutic or even possibly avoidant defense mechanism type way as a way to cope? find comfort, escape, and survive? Or did you see it more as that outlet for self-expression and and human connection? Or both? Oh, de- I mean, definitely it was a coping mechanism. No, like, I, but that's what I, to go back to what I said in the beginning of the, I grew up in a very chaotic home. You know, my she knows the story, but my parents have been divorced, you know, four times separated 11 they got remarried and that's two and from one another I had you know a couple different stepmoms lots of girlfriends in and out of the house I had lots of homes just from the time I was born until the time 
I mean, yeah, they got married for the last time in my mom's living room 21 years ago for the last time. So that was, and it was a very violent household. It was very loud. There was a lot of yelling. And so I always felt, I didn't like being home. I hated it. Like I hated being home. And so this kind of being in this closet with all of these different clothes and opportunities to be somebody else was definitely a coping. I was just at a podcast with a comedian friend of mine that we were both two characters. And it, it's the truth. She, you know, it's like, if you don't want to, if you don't want to be in your own skin, be in somebody else's, you know, it's much easier. Like, and that's the truth. And it was always easier for me to be, you know, a character which comes so naturally um, as opposed to being myself, which was always so uncomfortable because in my reality was almost, um, you know, unbearable in my own skin and also in just environmentally, you know. So I definitely and it was an attraction too. like in grade school, high school, I always hung out with the people who were funny. I like people who make me laugh. Like I, I really loved people who didn't take it everything so seriously. And like if, because you know, it's laughter is a release of tension. It's just, yeah. it's just physically that's what it is. And you know, it's just such a euphoric thing to laugh and have levity and to not yeah. take everything so seriously. Amen. Yeah. So yeah, I think I definitely both of them. I. From where I came from, 100% a coping mechanism, a defense mechanism. I didn't trust anybody. I don't want you to be close to me. It was a way for you to be out there and me be in front. You know what I mean? So there was no ability for you to... I still do that. I mean, that's it's that's a very hard one to unlearn out of your DNA once it's in there. And what about that desire to make people feel better? Does that stem from a similar means of coping with your internal and external environment? Or how might that have shifted for you in sobriety? I think now, I mean, I definitely have a better through sobriety and through, you know, learning how to try, try and live a little more successfully and and uh, more comfortably. I, th- I still love making people laugh. I love it. But for a very relatable current situation, like, for instance, in my home, Am I hanging my hat on how my wife feels, how if she's happy or not? It does not. Like, I have a very healthy boundary, healthy relationship with autonomy and the fact that if she's having a bad day, she gets to have a bad day. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. That's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very clear on that, which gives me a lot of sanity in my own life. But, you know, because I'm to a point that I know that you know other people's feelings are not my responsibility just as my wife's like she has her own autonomy where my what I'm going through is not her responsibility to fix me do you know what I'm saying like yeah no for sure you know did you always feel like you had that no oh boy no no I mean yeah because I think in a psychological way, you know, like I said from the beginning, my dad was my hero, so I hung my hat on whether he was happy. And he's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So his moods were, <laughs> they could change on the drop of a dime. He's happy one minute and, you know, raging the next. You're like, what happened? And so my barometer was based on how he was doing. So when he walked in the room, um, you know, you would, I would very quickly, that's how I know how to read a room pretty quickly, because I can read 
the energy pretty quick. You know, and at that time, yeah, my contentment and my comfortability was very much contingent on how he was feeling, <laughs> like which is a very difficult way to roll throughout your whole life. So it just, in my adult life, I did that in my, in other relationships because you tend to find people who are just that emulate your parents, which I did. So you get opportunities to redo that. So, and it's been only through pain. Like I've put myself in very painful situations where it's like you either change this or you learn to live in this amount of pain and being somebody who's sober and like, I'm like, no, I can't, I'm not going to choose to stay sober and continue to put myself in this amount of pain by my own actions right if that makes sense like absolutely people are going to do what they're going to do so your comedy career really started in Chicago Mm -hmm. while you were attending the art institute Mm -hmm. and then ultimately led you to drop out and move to Los Angeles what was what was that transition like well sort of I so I went to the art institute and that's where I was introduced to um you know to performance art and acting and then I met a girl there named Daima who I did performance art with and she is the one who suggested like hey you're really funny you should go second city so then that's why I, I dropped out of art school visual arts and then I went to second city in Chicago and from Chicago you know my last couple of teachers were like you should really move to LA we have a new program out there I think you'd be really good so that's kind of how that happened and you know I wasn't sober then I was still drinking I was still very much in a couple of diseases I was you know severely underweight um like I was sick I was like a sick individual and so I made it you know I came out to Los Angeles the way I didn't Los Angeles wasn't an ambitious goal. Like it was just one more thing that I was like, okay, I'll, (laughs) I'll do that. You know? And so Mm -hmm. they said to go and I had no other plans. Shocker. And I went out here and, you know, I came out with a friend of mine from Kentucky and she, you know, I made it in Los Angeles nine months and I didn't do anything. Like I, you know, I was friends with a, a, a standup named Doug Stanhope at the time and you know he was he's the first one he's like you should write you should write you're really funny because I never I didn't do comedy when I came all I did was I didn't do anything like I did nothing like I drank and I partied and somehow put that under the umbrella that I was trying to like do a career out here but yeah it was very turbulent and um but yeah it wasn't until like nine months in that you know I got sober and then that's when I really started to like live my life out here but yeah, it was a very, uh, those years of my life were all a little, uh, the best word I can say is like a turbulent situation. Was um, alcohol your main preference? It was, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did like pills, but I never, and I think I loved alcohol because I never needed to be, and I didn't ever want to stay up any longer. Like cocaine didn't sound attractive to me at all. I was like, why would, the f- why would I want to stay up longer than, <laughs> my goal <laughs> was to be like passed out like I wanted to be blacked out and get me I could have slept through the next two years of my life and that would have been gold do you know so and also too physically I knew I was so unhealthy like there was just something in me that it was like if I do coke at that time and by the way that was the only thing that was available in Louisville Kentucky that was the hardest drug that my friends like brought into the picture 
um i mean we didn't have heroin we didn't have you know at when i was drinking and stuff that was introduced but yeah i just kind of knew like i loved that i knew the consistency of alcohol it did exactly what i needed it to do Mm -hmm. which is just to glad me to the next moment like that's i just needed assistance in like getting through this fucked up life that i was so uncomfortable in i just couldn't stand it and so yeah so drugs i was just like eh, i don't need to be any lower than i am i don't need to be more depressed than i am and i don't need to stay up longer to drink more like that's not so yeah so that was my thing like even with pills i loved ambient i like thing depressants like yeah. i need things to put like, you to sleep <laughs> knock me out i liked being out that was the goal and it yeah like even with like hallucinate like acid and people tripping and like i did some of that but i was like yo my my brain is so whack like it's so imaginative that i just always had it in my head i was like i'm gonna be that person who hallucinates that i'm a box of chocolates and i'm never gonna get out of it and that's who i'm gonna be for the rest of my life i'm I'm gonna be a box of chocolates (laughs) So I just never trusted my head. I was like, this thing is crazy anyway. Like, so yeah, alcohol to me was like the perfect alternate reality. I was still, it could still manage it, but not be present at all and still be able to look like I can, I'm living this thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a deeper thing. And alcohol was as you said earlier, always a part of your life and growing mm-hmm. up. But when did it start? Did it ever ramp up? Was it consistent? What led to that like turbulent period of the transition to Los Angeles or even prior to that point when you when you said you were not well? Yeah, I'll say, listen, I mean, I was I started drinking when I was 12 um and I always like I said in high school you know I hung with the partiers I hung with the funny people I hung with the loud people I hung with the people who were getting arrested I hung with the people who were in hospitals like I just that was my jam like it just was and so but I think you know when I went to Chicago one I was away from home two I was on oh I started taking Ritalin like that was because I had ADHD which I probably do but somebody like me with an addictive personality to constantly looking to alter my state, that did not do well. You know, that was the first thing where I was like, oh, hold up. Like, I can also manipulate and manage my state. And so Ritalin became, of course, did I take it as prescribed? No. Like, I, you know, I would, if I wanted to stay up for three days, I would take, you know, five of them. Like, because I needed to. So I started misusing that. Um, which I think was a perfect combination with one finally being out on my own. I got into a relationship, which again, like I said, I didn't, I had no skills and I got into a relationship and my self-esteem was negative zero. You know, I was just, it was a setup for disaster and I was drinking this whole time. And then I got in a relationship with this guy and I just, you know, he became my world. I met him in art school and I made the decision right then and there that he was a better artist than I was. So a lot of that has, I, a lot of that has to do a reason why I dropped out of art school. Cause I was like, Oh, he's better. I should let him do that. And then I'll just go do something else. And so 
And then there was a time that he decided, we were together for a while, and he decided that he was going to go to San Francisco to the Art Institute out there. Which to a normal person now, I'm like, oh, he's doing proactively something great for himself. But at that time, it was personal, right? At that time, he, that he, you know, he left, he left me. He left me. Which, you know, so what this, all this did in me was it has nothing to do with him, but it ramped up this thing in me that I am not enough and I'm going to show him you know, what he did to me. So it kind of became, it just became like this sick, all it was was a key. It was a key that led me into all the things that led me into it progressing. Because from there, you know, like I said, I was 100 pounds. I was drinking every day. I stopped stopped eating at first, you know. I can go on and on, but I won't get into grave details. But like, there wasn't in that time in Chicago, there wasn't a lot of sober breaths because even in the time I wasn't drinking, I was either sticking my finger down my throat or taking pills like or smoking something like there was never any moments of sober clarity. I just at that time, I just couldn't I couldn't stand being in my skin. Like that's when it took a turn. Like there was a turn where it goes dark when you start like all those, you know, I was somebody who like, you know, prayed to whatever was out there, like that I wouldn't wake up. Like it was, that's where it like shifted of like, whoa, where I started, you know, um, utilizing, even when I wasn't drinking, I utilized other things to harm myself, to get out of myself. Mm -hmm. Like trying to, I guess, inadvertently kill myself, you know, with. Was that ever a conscious thought? I don't think so. I think especially with an eating disorder combined with drinking, I think it's masochistic. It's all harm. It's, it's, I want to get so small that I just disappear. I knew I could, I was never somebody that could kill myself. I knew I never had that. Like I was, that will never happen. Even now, do I have dark, depressive? Sure. But like, I'll, I'll never do that. And I knew that then, but I think through the back door, you know, it was more sneaky in that, like, with an eating disorder like that, where you're like, I want to get so small that I literally just disappear off the planet. That's how I want to be. I don't even want it. Like, it's such a dark, twisted world that I think that's where that led to, which led to just a whole, you know, spiritless, soulless, mindless, um, emotionless, toxic physicality way of living that, and it was just, it's an interesting spot to be in. It's just like, that's, you know, right before I got sober, it was kind of like this, you get to this crux of like, I cannot continue to live this way, but I can't imagine living and not drinking or sticking my finger down my throat or doing all the things that I did to manage to survive, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really, (laughs) It's a tough spot, but I'm grateful that it got to that spot. Or I don't think I'd be sober. Like I took it as long as I could, like till the wheels fell off. You know, was it was it your decision to get sober ultimately? Then it was, and no, it was. I, I'm, I like I said before, my dad got sober, and I think that is what is so beautiful about this life is you never know who's watching. You know, you never know who is watching your example in a good or a bad way. And I, you know, I watched my dad, who was somebody who was in and out of psych hospitals, 
you know, he was a very violent man. He was a rager. It was it's not a safe person to be around. What made him like your hero? I know earlier you mentioned him being the life of the party, a man who everybody loved and could get away with murder. But in light of all the violence, was there anything else? What was it that made you look up to him so deeply? Was he a creative? Was he... He's definitely a creative. Um, He's like a hidden creative. He plays music and plays guitar. And he's the funniest person I've ever met. He's the funniest person. I swear to God, when he tells stories... He t- I was just home and he was telling stories and I just like watched his timing is impeccable. He just does it naturally. He's just a natural storyteller. And it's just interesting. He's such an in- introverted person that you would never. But like once he like lets it rip of his true personality, he's the funniest <laughs> person. He kills me more than anybody, any comic. I don't give a shit. Like he oh my god he can tell a story like nobody's business and it's so funny every time um so i think he was my hero because and he always but he always made sure we were always taken care of Mm -hmm. and i just watched how he navigated his life and i loved like wherever we went whether he was drinking or sober like people would just fall all over him they just loved him they just he would walk in a room and people be like damn you know just to get his attention yeah and i just you know i just thought he was a really he was a cool dude and he you know also that's the last thing i'll say is that yeah he i had two brothers and i feel like he chose me he chose me to be his road dog you know because i was the last <laughs> the last little i was the youngest and so I was the last one on his little coattails, you know. I would just follow him to every, like, hotel, motel, uh, you know, new apartment, new condo, new house, new wife, new girlfriend. Like, I would just be like, yeah, dad, you know. Like, I just never saw him do any wrong. Mm-hmm. I just didn't. I was like, this dude's the shit. <laughs> like, you know, I, I just always was willing to participate in his life, whether and how when other people were judging him. I was like. He's doing the best he can, man. I just, I think I always related to him on a very spiritual level of like, I get this guy. <laughs> like, yeah. I just get this guy. So how did his sobriety dovetail into yours? Um, I Well, one, because I watched him get sober. And I, you know, when he first got sober, he started, it was cool. He, he got into like the service aspect of it right away. Like he. Um, what was he, going on in your life when he was getting sober? I was in grade school um yeah I was young and uh yeah just grade school stuff but I you know I remember and I think they were they were two divorces they they had so many divorces to go by the time he was even sober and they got divorced in his sobriety too you know um but I watched you know guys come over he would have meetings at our house in the basement and I'd watch that and we'd have you know the guys from the jails calling him and I just watch this guy who was such a maniac like transform into something that was a really good human mm-hmm. i really did and you know he i was always interested in his weird little meetings like i was like what is he doing like when he wasn't looking i'd go into his bedroom <laughs> and i would <laughs> open all his drawers because that's where he kept the like aa chips and I would study these damn chips and it, you know i had a triangle which i thought i think it was like a pyramid like I was just always Curious. intrigued by this thing. I was like, what? 
and he would take us to meetings. I remember, you know, I would always be so into it. And I look at over at my brothers and they, you know, would rather fucking watch paint draw. And they're like, get me the fuck out of here. You know, and I'm like, this is amazing. You know, but I was just, I cried, you know, and people would hug me. And I just was like, this is some, this is interesting. So I think that's what's great. And like in AA in particular is like, they always say like, you know, um, the seed was planted sort yeah. of a situation. And I think, you know, that's exactly what happened, but it wasn't by any, he never like came to me and was like, you're an alcoholic. Like he never did that. He was actually, he just showed a lot of compassion. And if something wasn't normal, he would point it out. Like I was detoxing and he's like, that ain't normal, you know, but, and then, <laughs> but he would never be like, here's what you should do. Yeah. He was just like, it's here if you want it, but whatever, you know? So I think his example was very loud. Did you have a rock bottom moment where you were like, okay, maybe I need to follow that same path? I think there were several moments to be honest with you. I think the best thing that happened to me was everybody left me. Like I think, cause I say this a lot, but you know, I was such a taker. And so I hung out with other takers. Like there wasn't if people, if there was nothing left to give in my little circle, people just bounced, you know, there was nothing left to, so that's exactly what happened, you know, I was left out in LA <clears throat> alone, and in, listen, even in that nine months, it was excruciating, the time that I was out here, there were several moments, I mean, I had a DUI, there were several things, like, if you looked at me, you could count my ribs, you know, you're like, uh, <laughs> what in the, are you okay, you know, there were several things like that, but I think, you know, I wasn't able to get to that bottom, if you will, to that point until I was out of all options. Like I was alone and I had, you know, I lived off my friend's dad's credit card. Like the, just, there was no friendly direction. I didn't have anybody. I didn't talk to my family. I didn't talk to my dad. I didn't, I had no friends left and I was living out of my car in LA and it was like, it was the most lifeless way of living. And so, you know, I think I had started seeking a solution because here's the thing. I started seeking it um, probably two months before I got sober, but I didn't seek it. Like, I didn't think drinking was a problem. I was like, here's what I'm going to do. I started looking up like eating disorder clinics and like therapists. And I was like, okay, here's a plan. I just need to get my eating under control I just need to get <laughs> once I get that right like I'll totally be able to drink normally because this is crazy like if I just so that's actually what happened first I found um <laughs> I haven't told you this I found a therapist out in Calabasas that did sliding scale stuff and I found her online and I started driving out there and you know that's where it began like that's where I didn't stop anything that I was doing but it was the first effort to be like something is not right <laughs> something's not okay I mean I had you know my roommate approached me you know she found it on her google search like on her <laughs> computer she's like I saw that you're searching out are, are you okay and I was like totally okay <laughs> I'm killing it you know, but it was, I did that even in secret. Like I didn't want anybody to know kind of a thing, but yeah, but that, that was the first, that was the first thing I started doing. And then, you know, my last drink, the last drink I had 
was really boring actually it wasn't even anything that was like oh you know it was just I just realized like I couldn't die I hadn't died like there's I that hadn't happened but and I'm still alive and like I can't I just yeah you just can't fathom continuing to live doing this so that's that's all you know I woke up in the, my car I was on the side of the road I lived I was in Studio City at the time because that's where I you know was one of my roommates were there and yeah I just you know I, I called my dad which I'm very grateful for and I just you know was like yo <laughs> like I can't do this anymore and so you know he gave me the number of a guy that he knows out in he's in Kentucky he gave me a number of a guy out here in LA and he's like well if you want to get sober call this guy and uh basically good luck <laughs> like that was it like you made it work yeah which is the best thing I'm telling you that is the best thing that could have happened and I always say that I am so grateful that he didn't you know send me money or send me you know come out get on a plane come get his little girl like I'm so glad like yeah. he he gave me the dignity I think that's what the thing like he just gave me the space to be like figure it out yeah I hope I hope you call him you know and if you you know my dad speaks a lot in AA kind of all over the country and I never knew what happened on his end until I started hearing him speak and he talks about that phone call of where you know he knew that when he hung up the phone, he cried because he knew when he hung up, it was a 50-50 chance of whether, you know, his daughter's going to come home in a box or she's going to make a different choice. And, yeah. like, it is. And that's with anybody. It's a 50-50. Yeah. But, you know, and unfortunately, you know, I'm very great. Not a, I know a ton of people who do not even have that privilege of having someone who's sober or having a dad or having, you know, I'm very lucky that I had that. But I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, and he couldn't choose that for you. You had to choose that for you. For sure. What was the first year of sobriety like? Oh, girl. Ooh. <laughs> it was not. E no, it was painful. Boy, it was painful. I mean, it was, it was. Were you sold initially, like immediately? Were you like, this is it? This is going to help me? Not when I, for I, I. Actually, I first came to program. I went to an OA meeting first, and then that's I started going to OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, yeah. which is everybody with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's how AA was introduced here, actually, because I went to one of those meetings, and there was uh, a woman in one because I I shared at the meeting, and I said, "Does anybody um, not eat so that they can drink more, or does anybody drink more so they don't have to eat?" And like, you know, that's kind of a startling question, which I realize now. But there was a woman in that meeting. Her name was Laura. And she came up to me afterwards. She's like, hey, have you ever heard of AA? And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. My dad's sober and stuff. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know, but I'm happy to take you to a meeting if that's something that you'd like to do. And so I, you know, I, I definitely was in recovery for about a month and I still like even in OA like I was still drinking I was still doing pills and stuff like that but I think you know my sobriety date is July 21st of 2002 and I don't know if I necessarily was sold you were 23 right yeah I knew I was tired as shit like I knew it, 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 it was the only thing left to do. Like, I literally was not... What else was I going to do? Go live in my car and just fucking be home? Like, what am I... 
So I just knew that, you know, I was willing to do what people were telling me to do, which was great. I mean, it doesn't mean that I wasn't rebellious or I didn't fight it or I didn't question it or it wasn't easy. It was all very difficult for me. I was really struggled getting sober. Um, I didn't struggle with the fact that I was like an alcoholic, but I didn't know how to, I had no tools. Like I didn't have any life tools to emotional, spiritual, mental, or actual living tools. Like I just didn't know how to handle my emotions and stuff like that. So all of that was really hard. I had panic attacks. I was angry out of nowhere. I smoked too much. I drank too much coffee. I got myself physically fucked up. You know, I ate too much sugar. Like I sweated a lot, you know? Yeah. It was exhilarating though at the same time. Like it's a trip. So you have 21 years of sobriety right mm-hmm. now a, a little bit over 21 years just a little yeah which also means to sort of use like the 12-step lingo you've likely taken the time to make a searching and fearless moral inventory to identify reflect on confront the character defects or flaws that sort of serve as a barrier to recovery that interfere with maintaining long-term sobriety or that like sober consciousness so I'd like to tap a bit deeper into that topic particularly fear and self-sabotage because as you were talking about your first relationship that's what I would view as a prime example of Mm self-sabotage part of why you dropped out of art school and contributed to that low self-esteem that ultimately drove you to this notion that you weren't good enough and that you were going to show him what he did to you and even beyond what we've talked about today when I think about how vulnerable stand-up can be is that fear that self-doubt something you continue to experience how do you manage that fear that self-sabotage how have you addressed those character defects and in what ways do they still manifest in your life god two things I'm an expert on um boy oh boy well I've had my share of fair share of self-sabotage in sobriety a lot of it has been in sobriety um and fear i it has definitely lessened i i it has lessened um but i take a lot of actions um i do a lot of god i mean this is a huge question it's i'm like my brain is calculating how to answer this question because it's my whole life is not is is taking contrary action to every fiber in my being that wants to self-sabotage me that is all fear um and so everything that i do is contrary action to what I want to do, which is nothing. Like I want of myself, like there is something in me that just wants to lay down and do nothing because you can't fail. Mm. There's no failure in doing nothing. (laughs) It's true. Which was a lot of my dropping out of art school. Like I'll focus on somebody who has a bigger talent than me in my perspective because I think that's the thing. I have a disease. Alcoholism is a disease of perception. It's not even real, but I I make my feelings, beliefs, fact, which is a part of the disease, which is a part of a lot of the self-sabotage. So my dependency has 
had to come a lot in turning some sort of universal higher power and that doesn't it's not a religious thing at all it's just something that i've had to come in to believe that is love that wants a movement forward that wants the best for me that wants me to shine that wants me to get, utilize these talents that you know and a lot of times when i don't have that in myself i do have to rely on others like you know the company that you keep you know i do keep the company that i keep i i treat very uh and my wife will tell, I don't, it's, there's very, um, not a few, there's a few spots because I don't trust a lot of people, but the people that I do put in those positions, I do trust them that when like having a day, let's say I'm having a bad day, I suck. I should, this is, why did I even do this? I'm the worst. I'm nobody, you know, the, all of the thoughts that go on in your head. So sometimes I'll just have to, you know, rely on either to my wife or my sponsor or a good friend of mine that I've had for, you know, it's known me for a long time. I'll, I'll pitch it to them. I'm like, should I give up? <laughs> like, should, is this, is this horrible? Is this piece horrible? Is this, and I have to trust when they give back that feedback that that's just a divine response because it's, it's outside of my own thinking. So I do that a lot, but I also do things that, you know, I, you know, I do a lot of meditation. I do a lot of writing. I, um, I read a lot of books that kind of, I, I listen to podcasts. I listen to things that are uplifting. I really try to keep in my sphere things that are constantly supporting me and, 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 and forcing me to level up with myself because I I've come to know that like I need people in my life that um, can see a clearer perspective of my life than I can because I'm always I'm a human being and I have and I think every human being but my own experience of myself is I'm always going to have that voice it has lessened and I know how to handle it better but boy it's it's still there like I girl I can wake up with it I don't know what happens in the middle of the night but I can wake up with it like today's it's not your day. <laughs> it's like it's eight o'clock in the morning. Why, why, why is it not my day? Why is it not my day? You know, but you know, but I do things to combat that. Like I'll get up, I'll get my cup of coffee. I'll write, I'll go and meditate. Um, I'll go move my body. Physical exercise is very important to me. Taking care of myself is very, eating the right foods is very important to me. If I'm starting to have a panic attack, how much caffeine have you had, Sarah? You know, like those little things that I that I just kind of went over when I was newly sober, especially. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of my self sabotage and fear go hand in hand with with um, I don't I wasn't able to show up. I couldn't show up. Like I physically couldn't bring my body. And there's been a lot of times I was supposed to be somewhere that an agent was supposed to be there or, um, you know, I was supposed to look presentable for something and I just couldn't do it. I physically could not bring my body because I was, the fear was dictated everything I did. And my thought was like, just don't show up because you don't show up. They can't judge you and you can't fail. So just don't do it. And I was, you know, a slave to that. And so now in my life, you know, it, there's a bottom line I have. Like, I show up no matter what. It's like, I have a comedy show tonight. It's a 10-minute set. Do I have, am I, do I have fear about it? Yeah, because that just, it just is. I just, it is. Yeah. Am I going? Yeah. Is there a part of me that's always like, just don't go. Sure. But like, 
the bigger piece of the pie now is bring your body and I just know that when I do that when I'm willing to show up and you know and have and do my best and try have a good time with it like it it works out and you know what it's not ever as scary as I have it in my head that the it's so how many opportunities that I've blown and the last thing I'll say about that and it's great that's what I mean watch the company you keep because I do have amazing talented brilliant people that in my life that are my that I can call my friends and I do and I watch them do their thing and they're very successful at it and it's like hey if like they can do it why can't I do it I'm no different like I'm no less than or better than them I'm just the same we're both so if they can do it I can I can do it and it means that that simply there's no like I can take the actions to go towards that goal you know, I stay out of the results of it, whether that happens or doesn't happen, whether you get great fame or no fame or money. <laughs> that's not even the goal. It's just, you know, having, enjoying the journey because for such a long time, even with performing and stand up, I, I didn't even enjoy it because like you said, post show, like I would beat myself up so bad, even if I had a good set or a bad set. I was like, oh, you suck. That was terrible. I should have done that different. They didn't. That person, the guy in front didn't laugh. You know, so I had to make a decision like, hey, Sarah, if you're going to do this, buddy, <laughs> have fun. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very long-winded answer. That was a great answer. All right. I just, no, that was a great answer. Okay. It's, it sounds like it's also like it's community and it's a muscle that you kind of have to every day wake up and consciously work on. And, and that contrary action is something that you need to decide for yourself sort of every day. Like you have to work continuously to maintain that sort of sober consciousness. I do. But I, I know I just want to say this, though. It's not like hard, grueling work. I don't have to roll up my sleeves every day and like force this to work. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a, it's, it's fun now. Like it's, it's fun. Like it's fun to challenge myself. Like it's, I'm just on to myself by this point in my life where I'm like, oh, this is what you're doing again today. You know, like the same repeating five thoughts in my head. I'm like, wow. <laughs> is there, those are the three thoughts you're oh, still thinking about. You know, it's funny. It's like, oh my God, this human experience is so silly. And so, so it's not hard work. I find a lot of joy. That's what makes sobriety and like so much fun for me. Like it's just, I have so much enthusiasm about it because I still don't know shit about living like it's so interesting (laughs) every day yeah I learn a little more about it I'm like oh I thought I had unlock yesterday I do not you know (laughs) it's just fun it's fun to keep challenging yourself and to keep changing and to be open to that and seeing what happens you know because life is definitely wild I want to hop back onto the comedy world because I think a lot of not just comedians, but artists in general tend to feel very deeply, very acutely, very profoundly. And I just watched an episode about the comic Greg Giraldo on uh, the TV series Dark Side of Comedy, which essentially explores just like addiction, internal battles, suicide um, in the comedy world. And it also just speaks to the fact that it's, it seems as though a shocking number of public figures in comedy deal with some sort of behavioral health condition like depression or addiction or 
have committed suicide due to mental illness. So I'm wondering if that resonates with your lived experience with the personal journeys of other comics that you've worked with, or is that just a perception that the media has popularized? No, it's definitely really real. That's real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think comedy comes from, you know, a lot of trauma, probably. Um, Some pretty, you know, dark corners that people have as you've said in the beginning, have honed this craft um, of coping and defense, and some have made a very powerful living from it. And it's a high that a lot of people seek out because without it, it's so painful. And that's why a lot of, you know, comics that I know, like if you talk to them, not not everybody, it's the, I don't want to like blanket statement, but a lot of them, if you see them, they're, they're very quiet, very introverted. Um, or those are the sober ones that I know, like, you know, or they're very to themselves um, and struggle. Like it's a, it's hard, but, um, and, and performing is such a drug because that's where they feel the best and they're getting validation and they can, you know, connect, you connect with the audience and that feels so good, you know, cause, um, and you know, the people, and there's some comics that I know that, you know, aren't sober, whatever. And they, there's, you know, there's substance abuse, there's mental illness, there's all kinds of stuff. But I, yeah, I think some of the darkest people I know are comedians <laughs> for sure. Or artists. Like I went to art school. I'm also a visual artist. Yes. Like, I don't know, like I have a friend that's a very successful comic and she was teaching a class and I think she tells a story about a girl came in her class and <laughs> she was so happy. And the and the teacher who's a comedian, very successful comedian was like, I think you're too happy to be a comedian. Like I I don't know if this is, you're t- like you're, you're literally too happy. Like, I, you know, so there's those things. Um, I don't know, I, I just, every, person I know that does that's a creative um there is some sort of struggle or tension within themselves that they have to seek out this outlet to to get to get it out of their being like Mm. and to express it in some sort of way and I think comedy is so cool because it's very useful do you personally feel like performing is akin to like a drug still <laughs> no no um I at this point I I just with comedy because it has been there's been so much pain with it as well either with its you know uh getting rejected at an audition or um or doing a show that you really want to do like doing you know MTV's punked which was my first job in Los Angeles and it was so fucking great and I was like auditioning in front of Ashton Kutcher and it was such a high every time we shot it was high like I was flying and then learning that like oh just because you did that doesn't mean that was it like you have to, you know, I always, I had a sponsor at the time who I would be so excited. And then when we weren't shooting, I'd get so depressed. She's like, Sarah, you've got to learn to land the plane, dude. Like you just, you get high and then you take a nosedive and you just fucking crash. She's like, you got to put the wheels down. 
you know, tilt the, tilt the wings a little bit. You gotta, and so I think, and that's been a big part of the whole creating process and finding the middle of, of keeping it right sized. Like even doing a show of like, oh, if it was a great show, it's just a show. Cause then, you know, the next show might not be as great. You might bomb and with the same jokes, different crowd, <laughs> different night. And so that's where I'm at now. It's like, that's brought some fun back into it. And cause I love as an artist, I just like doing the work. I've never been a big one for the outcome. Even when I do visual arts, like, and I started painting, I'm a painter that doesn't have like the outcome in mind. No idea what I'm going to put. <laughs> like, I just kind of start and, and like, I kind of talk to like that, whatever divine thing is out there. I'm like, let's do it. Show me what's up. And like, and then eventually I have a full painting, but I feel assisted on it, you know? And so, so that's, I don't know. I don't see it as a high really anymore. It's fun. Mm -hmm. But I think anything, like even one thing that I've noticed with social media, like I've noticed with that, like I have to watch that, like as, you know, even with the likes and seeing who yeah. likes your sh stuff and, and, you know, it's that. It's like a drugified human connection. It's nuts. Like it's an endorphin rush that like you just go. I I noticed this this morning. This is a very current. I'm like, where am I getting my highs here? Like, the phone was sitting there. Had no intention on picking it up. None. I was actually just doing my morning writing, like which I do in the morning. It was sitting there, and out of nowhere, I just picked it up and started scrolling Instagram. And you catch yourself. Mm -hmm. And I make it a note not to pick up the phone. I don't want to look at social media. I don't even look at emails before I've done all my stuff. Like I make a mental note and you just look and I'm like, I have my phone in my hand and I am, how did that happen? Yeah. Like those are the things that I'm like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Like that's more jarring to me than like seeking highs and performing. But, um, but yeah, that's, it's always a blast if you can make people laugh. Um, I, I see it as a bonus more than like anything. Mm -hmm. And so I try now to stay out of my head and just be very present. And when I'm having fun and I'm present with what's happening with the audience or connecting with them, I'm having a blast and they're having a blast. And that's, that's all I want. Yeah. It's just connecting with another, the human race <laughs> <laughs> and, and leaving people better than when they, before they met me. That's my only job like that I want to do and that's not just on stage it's just in life you know like going to a coffee shop like don't be a dick to the barista like just don't be a dick God do you man. think being married to someone sober was important for you you know I I I, I guess so it just kind of happened that way I think I know mean, I've <laughs> I went on one date in sobriety that they, it was like, I've been with guys and girls. I know it's, this is very, <laughs> I keep saying guys, but like I went on a date with a guy and, um, he was not an alcoholic, really normal dude, nice guy. But I was bored out of my mind, not because it was a guy, not because it was a, whatever, but like, I think it's such an integral part of my life and who I am. Um, and most of the people that I know are either in recovery or they're drunks, which I still find really interesting. Same. <laughs> yeah, just do. I think they're the most interesting people on the planet. Um, I, I don't, it's not a, it's not a requirement. I think that's just in my experience in this life thus far, it's, that's how it's gone. I think what I, 
re- love most about anybody is that like that somebody is, is seeking something like even if they were a normal person if there's something that enthusiasm for seeking more is that's attractive to me like I think that's hot like that's hot so sobriety no is it not it's not necessary but it definitely helps to have some common footing and mm-hmm. where we're starting off with you know you've had a rough past year as well and <clears throat> so I'm wondering how I know you mentioned community and some tools that you use on a daily basis to help you maintain, you know, clarity, make the right decisions for yourself. How do you weather the storm, storm, so to speak? How do you deal with like really painful life events? And what you're referring to, I guess, is the passing of my mother. Yes. Right. Um, and thanks. Thanks for bringing Thanks for actually talking about that. Um, because most people, even if they know about it, they don't bring it up, which I totally understand and respect. I mean, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. Um, but I wish people would talk to me about it more because it's a very important part of my life. Um, and, you know, it's a great question. And I think you don't know. Well, I didn't know how I would handle anything until it actually happens because mm-hmm. I'm very close to my parents. Um, even in the, all the tumultuous stuff that we grew up in, like... There was still, you know, and my mom and I were very close. And I think if you would have asked me a year and a half ago what my biggest fear was, it was losing my mom and my mom in particular. And it's a big reason why, you know, I stuck my finger down my throat. It was a big reason trying Mm -hmm. to get that fear out of my body was it's massive. It's biggest number one fear, losing my mother. And it happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't know how I would handle I can't even I still now it's been a almost it'll it's a little under a year that that she's passed and even now it's a little surreal but I will tell you you know I never had is in linked to sobriety I never had the thought of like oh I want to drink because that would make it better like Mm. that would so make how selfish would that I mean oh my that's the most selfish move I could possibly think and it actually went the opposite for me of like how can I you know be present with this this is like how can I be present with this because not only is it for me but I have other people in my family who are devastated by this and my own father you know who you know it it was just it was another lesson of like more change and what are you going to do with that like and it just caused me to go deeper like it just caused me to like I got you know I saw it I went to a medium (laughs) I you know I talked to my mom it's it's allowed me to like my mom has gotten bigger you know, like not smaller, she's mm-hmm. gotten bigger in my life. And I got an opportunity to turn that into something that's like, not a reason to stay sober, but it's like, wow, like if you stay sober, like you're presented with life and how you're gonna react to it. And sometimes you surprise yourself. Like it's been a really cool, it's all turned into, you know, more divine stuff. And I get to be awake to see little signs of my mom everywhere. It's so cool. And like, so, yeah, it's been a tough year, but it's definitely been an interesting year of being um, in observance of like, huh, life is 
holy hell, just hang on, you know, it's a ride for sure kind of a thing. You've taken all sorts of, of turns creatively, pursuing different avenues, you know, and weathering various challenges, not just with the passing of your mom. What is it about your life that keeps you driven and motivated and how do you know when you just need to take a break what keeps me driven and motivated is because i know i'll never have the lock on this thing like i'll never life is still so crazy to me like it still blows my mind like and i don't want to miss any of it even the bad like I just think it's so vibrant in all ways, even the bad stuff. It's like, cause we have plenty of that going on right now, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm always interested in how this is gonna transform. How's it gonna conspire? Like, <laughs> like, and making a choice of like, yes, being aware of all things that are happening in our world, outside and inside. Like, I think it's, but it, it, I have a foundation of starting with myself, right? Like of in my own little world of like, I am constantly surprised. I, there's, I don't have the answers. Even if I think I do, I, I really do treat each day as like a new opportunity to be very teachable and to learn something else, bad or good. Like not every day is gonna be great and it's not. Yeah, It's not, like there's been a lot of shit days, but it's just like nothing stays forever the same. And it makes all that, that kind of the yin and the yang of life. It's just like, you can't have the sweet without the bitter, but I can't wait to get to the sweet, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just, that's how I, that's how I look at it, I guess. Like it, I just am so enthusiastic about learning more and seeing more because there's so this, I don't know. It's just cool. This life is so big. This world is so big. There's so many people and you can, on the drop of a dime, your life can change. You could go to the coffee shop and it can, you can meet somebody there that will alter your life. Right. But you don't know that, but you just got to keep living, keep being willing to show up. <laughs> so I think that's what's, it's so simple. I like how simple it is. Yeah. So I get really excited about it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I think cereal's really cool. You know, like it's such remedial stuff. And it's a little bit, I think it's artsy, artistical stuff. Like I like sensory things. Like I like food and, and like, you know, I came in and you have a beautiful pool. I was like, wow, that looks amazing. You know, like just stuff like that. I'm easily excitable. <laughs> little things are cool. So. so Sarah, to take a page from your book, what is the most not cool thing about you? <gasps> I knew you, you booger. There's so many not cool things about me. I think, um, I mean, my wife is sitting right here. I'm sure she'd love to tell you something that's not cool about me. You know what's not cool? I get easily overwhelmed quickly. I'm very easily overwhelmed. I'm somebody, I am not an A-type personality. I'm not like, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. Itinerary. <laughs> I'm not an itinerary person. My mom was an itinerary person, so it's very overwhelming to me. Mm. I love it. I do best with itineraries, but I think um, I wish that it, going forward in my life, I think that's one thing that I would really like to ch um, change 
is that my ability to take in information that I don't get, like I don't, I can manage it better. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's crippling sometimes. Yeah. Like I, I can't move because I'm so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And it's it can be something really small that overwhelms me. Um, and just to piggyback on that. And yeah, and just I think uh, I don't, I this is getting better, but yeah, of of getting past what I want people to think about me, like getting people people's approval. <laughs> it's bullshit. Like those are two top things that come to my head of like I want to do things that because I want to do them regardless of what people think about me. Um because that's definitely something I'd like to be much cooler about. <laughs> For sure. So I'm starting a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question for the next guest. Oh, okay. So what is it that motivates you and drives you to help others? Hmm. What motivates me and drives me in helping others? I want, yeah, I like to see people feel good. I like them to feel their best I like people to feel supported and seen and helped and 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 person to person I want people to feel human it's like I've every job I've ever had outside of comedy was like either nonprofit or in mental health working with our you know homeless population and that has a soft spot in my heart of like making people feel human like that they are cared about like and taken care of and that's very important to me like that's what I say like when you go into Starbucks don't be a dick like people have so much going on in their lives yeah everyone everyone has something it's like you know I so I think that's what's important is you know I always try my best to you know if somebody has you have beautiful eyes I will tell you you have gorgeous eyes and if people get weird some people get weirded out they're like uh (laughs) it's fine but I want people to like know like hey like I notice you that's yeah that's a an amazing trait or whatever it is but making people thanks for being so kind to me that made a big difference in my day like yeah stuff like that I just it's so important to me um especially in our climate now where there's so much separation and you're I'm better and you're right and I'm you're wrong and it's like yo and people aren't feeling like some you know just shoulder to shoulder anymore and that's I, I hate that you know so I think that's I love seeing people, the light come on in them that like, oh, there's hope. I can, you know, I'm, I, I have every ounce and ability to do this thing, this life thing, and to do it pretty well. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's just help each other. I think it's a huge part of my, just how I want to live. I really do like comedy or I don't care what you're doing out there. Like just, I always had a woman, this last thing I'll say, but she used to always say to Sarah, brighten this about where you are, just brighten this about where you are. Like it, there's no big life changing things. Just do what you can where you are. So that's all. I, I think that's that. it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to finally meet you and to have you share and talk today thank you for having me those are wonderful you are such a good interview 
This has been Ryan Keneally with the Modern Profits Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and follow the podcast as it really helps spread the wisdom and make an impact.